Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. And good morning. We're back in the studio for yet another show. These weeks just roll by and everybody's back in school. Good morning, Frank. Good, good morning, morning, Dr. Leanne. Good morning, Dr. Ira. So how's everybody's week been? Great. 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 So Leanne, the kids are back in school. Is yeah. that a good thing for you or are you a little sad? Well, the kids started, the big kids, the twins started kindergarten. So it's been a, an adjustment because I had them at preschool. Everybody was at preschool all through the summer. So there was no break, but, but big kids school is different. They're loving it so far. They, uh, that's great. Yeah. And I heard that first day was quite the exciting one. Your son punched the principal. Right. So good way to start. <laughs> no. Good way to start the year. No. Yeah. So we have a rascal. We have a wild kid. And uh, I told my husband at the meet the teacher event, I was like, we need to go introduce ourselves to this principal because we, we might see him again, you know? So we went up there and, and he put his hand out to give my kid a fist bump and Matthew just wailed him, you know, like, just like way too hard of a fist bump. I mean, he's 30 pounds. So it, how hard can it be? But still, I'm like, come on, man, this is the first time you're being here, principal. Wow. Yeah. Foreshadowing of things to come. I hope not. But so far it's been great. Could it, be a future it, linebacker. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does it make your life a little bit easier work-wise when the kids are back in school? Um, well, it's been an adjustment because I don't know if you know, but element public elementary school starts really early. So they leave the house with my, my husband does drop off. My kid keeps asking me if he could ride the cheese wagon. Come on, mom, let me ride the cheese wagon. But I'm like, no, you're punching the principal. Like you can't ride that cheese wagon. Um, but my husband takes him in and, and it's like 640 when they leave. Wow. So, so yeah, you're really getting up early. like at five in the morning. Yeah. So that part's a little bit different, but I'm know. usually just going to bed at five in the morning. Right, sometimes. right. Quit, quit contrasting your fabulous life with my... it's not. Well, it's been a stressful week. I had an ocular migraine yesterday, saw an ophthalmologist, had some visual changes during the middle of a patient exam. And it, that's not good. It no. was, it was a little scary, Yeah, but I'm, I'm fine. Good. And working on that. Yeah. An ocular migraine. I've had one of those too. And the first time you have them, it really is like. I, I think I could be having a stroke because yeah, all your vision, like in one eye typically starts getting fuzzy and it like closes in and, and like, as the moments pass, it's like, you could see less and less and less. And yeah. so there's, I told no, my, there's no headache. Exactly. Yet. So I told my staff, I'll either be back here in an hour and a half or I'll be in the emergency room. Getting TPA or I'll be having emergency <laughs> laser surgery for the retinal detachment. But, yeah, but uh, the just, ophthalmologist I saw, Dr. Alex Katz, uh -huh. uh, whose office is right next to mine, uh, is really good. And, you know, we had an ophthalmologist on this show we last did. week, Dr. Yeah. Julia Nimeroff. Wasn't she awesome? She was great. Yeah. But her office, of course, would have been 45 minutes away and I, I needed immediate care. Yeah. So I'm glad I did that. And Frank, I understand you're like the politician that lost. <laughs> You never made it to Washington. Yeah, never made it, but uh, that's all right. But we survived the experience. That's the good news. Yes. Well, well hopefully you'll yeah. get there soon. Yes, we'll we'll give it another go. But had you gone to Washington? Yes. <clears throat> I was going to talk to you a little bit about, about the museums, right? The museums. Yeah. My, I have favorite museums there. I love the Museum of American History. Mm -hmm. uh, the flag that was flown in the Star Spangled Banner from. Mm -hmm. Not the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812 is hanging in there uh, with Francis uh, Scott, Scott Key's, Key's words mm -hmm. right underneath it. Very awe-inspiring. Yeah. And so I like that. I like the Hirschhorn Museum of Modern Art. It's one of my favorite museums in Washington. And I like the Museum of Natural History. Yeah. The one with the big mastodon in the lobby. Yeah, yeah. You, you expect Fred, and, Fred <laughs> and Flintstone and, yeah. and Wilma and Barney Rubble to come out. Right, right. Dinosaur bones. You kind of get it, right? Sure. So we're going to segue right into today's show. Did you know that the discovery of plant pollens just a few years ago in a Neanderthal burial site in northern Iraq gave 
archaeologists something to really smile about, more so than mastodon bones, because they systemically identified the pollen's parent plants, mallows, grapes, hyacinth, ephedra, yarrow, ground cell, and knapweed, and realized that they gained valuable insight into the practice of herbal medicine not 5,000 years ago when it was recorded, but 60,000 years ago, That's people nice. were using herbs and practicing medicine. That's, it's amazing. It is amazing. You know, it kind of gives a whole new meaning to the concept BC powder. Oh, <laughs> oh. laugh track. Yeah, laugh track. Okay. So, you know, you can call into this show. <laughs> We'd love for you to call in. <laughs> and if you've just joined us on this show, Today, we're talking about modern times and ancient remedies. So give us a call at 772-220-9788. We'd love to hear about ancient remedies that you're using. Uh, do you use a lot of ancient stuff in your practice, Leanne? Yeah, I don't think so. Because I thought we were going to talk about really cool stuff today. Well, I think I am, and I just don't know that I am. Right? You are. Yeah. I mean, there's some stuff that I, I read about that... I am awe-inspired about, but I've had no experience with, like, leeches and maggots. You know, it's, yeah, I try to avoid those. <laughs> try to yeah. avoid that. Yeah. But they're, they're actually used a lot. We're going to talk about that in, in, in just a few seconds. We're going to bring that up. Give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking. Formal records and herbal, herbal remedies came a little later, like 5,000 years ago. The Egyptians recorded them on papyrus scrolls. And, and some of these are still being used today. And they had some quite sophisticated healing techniques. What the American medicine has evolved to, though, is getting away from herbal remedies and getting more into compounds that are pharmaceutically derived. But what the public doesn't realize is that if you look at many of these compounds, they're derived from herbs and plants. And we have literally looked at on this planet about one half of 1% of all the plants. And 25% of our pharmaceutical drugs come from this one half of 1% of herbs that have been studied and derived. So if you go into a pharmacy and look on the shelf, quarter of the stuff that's there comes from one half of 1% of all the plants that we have studied. So we've got a vast amount of stuff. Yet undiscovered. Yet undiscovered. That's it kind of reminds me of a movie. Huh. Yeah, a, a good movie. Mm. Rotten Tomatoes really rated it high. Okay. And the movie came out in 1992. The movie stars Sean Connery. Not as James Bond, but as the medicine man. It may be one of my favorite movies. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for this movie. Because this was the make and break scene of the movie. He was a medicine man in the Amazon. And, of course, he had the hot babe who was a scientist. You got to have that. Right. Yeah. But what they discovered was that these natives had these large tumors, probably some form of lymphoma. And they would eat this fruit from this tree that would literally shrink these tumors. Wow. And he tried to take this fruit and find the parent compound that was shrinking the tumors mm. because the big bad pharmaceutical industry wanted to monopolize on it. And that, that was kind of no. one of the sidebars right. of, okay. of the whole movie. And these f this fruit was filled with bugs, so he would get the bugs out. He could never discover the parent compound until the end of the movie because it wasn't from the fruit. It was, it was from the bugs. Yeah. It was from the bugs, and it was the bugs' enzymes that were shrinking the tumor and not the, not the fruit. So in 1992, Sean Connery, Medicine Man, if you're really into herbal medicine, cool stuff with Sean Connery, the Amazon, it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, you, sh you, sh you should watch wow. it. All right, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. But around the world, ancient remedies are providing a lot of inspiration for modern scientists. And many of these healing techniques have been practiced for thousands of years, and they do work but only in recent years. 
have scientists validated the medical use of many healing herbs used by our forebears, including garlic, echinacea, ginkgo or ginkgo biloba. And those plants really only comprise just a fraction of what we've looked at. So if you look at ancient Egyptian physicians, they treated a wide variety of medical conditions, everything from gynecologic disorders to pediatric illnesses. They even did some surgery in ancient Egypt. And what's amazing is that the patients actually lived. So doctors recorded these experiences on papyrus scrolls, and those scrolls still exist. And many of their prescriptions, not surprisingly, were based on these herbal preparations. So I don't use a lot of this in my practice. And when I did my research for this show, I said, is this plagiarism or is this research? And I came across a quote by Wilson Meisner, a famous playwright and author from a few years back. And that quote was actually stolen by the comedian Stephen Wright, the deadpan comedian. And the quote is, if you steal from one author, it's plagiarism. But if you steal from many authors, it's research. <laughs> so I'm going to share with you today some of, my, some of my research. Dr. Leanne. Yes, Dr. Ira. Have you ever heard of Dr. 2UU? No, I have not. Yeah, I, ha I hadn't either. But Dr. 2UU actually won the Nobel Prize for Medicine because she discovered a breakthrough drug after pouring over 2,000 ancient herbal remedies and recipes. And she discovered the anti-malarial drug artemisinin. That's A-R-T-E-M-I-S-I-N-I-N, artemisinin. And it's derived from wormwood. And it's been credited with saving millions of lives from people who develop malaria in some of the underdeveloped countries. Artemisinin comes from wormwood. Now there's an alcohol that also comes from wormwood. Anybody know what it is? No. They use it in New Orleans a lot. It's referred to as the green fairy because it causes hallucinations and it's absinthe. Huh. Mm -hmm. So absinthe is also derived from wormwood. And so I don't know whether if you drink enough absinthe, if it will treat malaria or not, because <laughs> it probably doesn't have enough artemisinin in it. But at the end, you don't care. And they're absinthe bars. And what, why they call it the green furry is because absinthe is white, but when you pour it over ice, yeah. it changes color, and it actually does turn green. So there's a famous New Orleans drink. Have you been to New Orleans? I have. Have you been to New Orleans? No. Okay, you've got you've got to travel more. I, I, I keep trying. You've actually got to make it there. I, I, okay. I keep trying. So there's a famous New Orleans drink called the Sazerac. All right. You've heard of the Sazerac? No. No. Well, Sazerac is a famous drink in New Orleans, and it's made from from absinthe. If you've just joined us, we're talking about ancient times in the modern day era, ancient remedies in the modern day era. And we'd love for you to call in. So give us a call. Let us know what you're using or what your mom or grandmom might've used on you. So Dr. Tuyu's discovery of this artemisinin was great. So we know now that from opium and poppies, in fact, it's interesting because when they do a lot of drug testing in people applying for new jobs, and if you've just had a poppy seed bagel, you can test positive for heroin. That was definitely a Seinfeld. But it's true. <laughs> but but it, they did have that on Seinfeld. Yes. But I've had patients actually test positive for opium or heroin because they had a poppy seed bagel for breakfast. So if you're going to be drug tested, don't have breakfast at 2J's. Right. Okay. <laughs> so from opium to, and poppies to quinine, and quinine is used for treating heart arrhythmias. They used to use it for muscle cramps, but they yeah. took it off the market. For muscle cramps? Yeah, because it was causing cardiac issues. Ooh. But I used that uh, for sure. a long time. And, you know, quinine is the active ingredient in tonic water, water right. also. Right, right. Yeah. And that comes from the chinchona tree. Digoxin, which is used to regulate heart rate, comes from foxgloves. And so there are many gems that have been unearthed from the past that are truly testable medical and benefit. And there's a whole branch of science that's dedicated to the study of this. You know what that's called, guys? It's called ethnopharmacology. 
but it's not as simple as isolating out that one active ingredient from a plant. So apart from the fact that a lot of these plants grow naturally, they're poisonous. So they make useful drugs in a population that requires planting and sufficient raw material to extract the poisons out and get to the actual ingredient that works. So what we have to do is actually develop new strategies and considering uh, that we treat large uh, population groups, decide what's really important. Yeah, because some of these plants that they're using are actually endangered, right? So then there's some issue with that where we, you know, can wipe out entire populations of plants just trying to treat our large number of people. Right. And a lot of them are derived in rainforest and the rainforest are shrinking uh, for overdevelopment. For instance, milkweed. Milkweed has a white sap in it and it has a, it's a good treatment for treating warts and maybe sunspots. So and milkweed, though, is the larval plant for monarchs, right? Yes. And and you know that that's one of the reasons why monarchs are able to stay alive is because they're so bitter and toxic to predators because they're eating milkweed sap. Yeah. All right. But now they're using milkweed sap to eliminate skin cancers and, and treating skin cancers with that, which might work well. So what I like to do is talk about five old remedies that we're still still using today that are healing us. And the first is, is kind of frightening and it's almost from a horror movie. Really? Yeah. It's leeches. Ooh. Yeah. Leeches, you know, leeches are bloodsuckers. Yeah. Right. It reminds me of that uh, movie, uh, the uh, African queen, I think mm -hmm. they were, he was complaining about the leeches that were all over it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the old Humphrey Bogart. The old Humphrey Bogart. Movie, I've been yes. I've been on the boat, the African Queen. It's down in Key Largo at mile marker one hundred. Okay. Have you seen the seen the actual boat that was used in that movie? I think I did. It's once. worth stopping there, mm, the Holiday mm. Inn at mile marker one hundred. It's actually right. It's right there trip. on the canal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe right. you'll actually get there. What do you think? Yeah. So leeches are actually one of the more civilized methods of bloodletting, and the reason why leeches work so well is because leeches have an anticoagulant huh. in their systems, mm. which take blood clots and liquefy them, and then they can suck out the old blood. They've, they've used leeches for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Hippocrates believed in the use of leeches, and he believed that if there was a balance in, or an imbalance in what they used to call the body humors, and the humors are, are chemicals or, or fluids, not laugh tracks. Oh, like, 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 like you're going to black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Right. Okay. And so if you use leeches, this would cause that. And the best way to correct this was to drain the excess blood. Kill George Washington. Yeah. You know, George Washington died at, I think he was like 66 years old, yeah. which was considered old back then. Because they bloodled him and he bled to death. Right. He actually had scarlet fever. Is what he had, and it would have probably resolved on its own, but they bled him to death, yeah. and so they would do that to get rid of the body humors. So what do they use them for now? Well, they use it mainly in plastic surgery and in microsurgery where there's poor tissue healing uh, in facial grafts or uh, breast surgeries uh, where there's not really good blood supply. The arterial flow, and, and the best way to describe the blood is to do a traffic report. Okay? We've got good flow today on I-95, but watch off, but watch out getting off here in Palm City because there's a lot of congestion and we're backed up on 95 for about a mile because the blood flows from the arteries mm -hmm. to the tissue. Tissue has arterioles. Arterioles go directly into the tissue. Mm -hmm. Then the blood is returned to the heart for oxygenation through small veins called venules, back to larger veins, and then back to the heart. What happens when there's a lot of congestion in the tissues? You don't get good venous return, and there's a lot of venous congestion. So if I want the flow to go better, the flow of 95, 
right. get back into Palm City, right? I need to remove the traffic jam, and leeches will do that because they will relieve the venous congestion by getting rid of all that old dried blood, allowing new vessels to form. And so we use leeches for that. That's the biggest use of leeches now in the world is in plastic surgery. Huh. I thought it was pretty interesting. So that's not the only bug we're talking about today, right? No, we're going to talk about maggots. <laughs> What's the deal with maggots? Yeah, hey, we're going to get to maggots next. You know, the Center for Leech Therapy, they actually have a Center for Leech Therapy. It's in England. It's in Wales. And the UCLH, which is the University College of London hospital system, use these, let's call them bloodthirsty worms, to drain excess blood after microsurgery all the time. And so if you really want to learn about leeches, just do a little research on University College of London hospitals and their use of leech therapy. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Mm. There's a term that they use for uh, people that use leeches all the time. Mm. They're called herudotherapists, H-I-R-U-D-O therapists. And these herudotherapists have made extraordinary claims that leeches can cure migraines, heart disease, joint disorders, bronchitis. And that, to me, is a good talking point, Leanne, because I don't think that we should just use things because someone says they work. What we do in this country is use things that are FDA approved, and it has to have evidence behind it. We call that evidence-based medicine. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the stuff that we're going to mention today, we're not going to recommend you use. We're just giving it to you as a point. And Dr. Leanne actually is going to caution our audience here today about why we shouldn't just indiscriminately use over-the-counter, non-FDA-approved herbs. And it's really interesting because there aren't a lot of true head-to-head double-blind studies. And that's what we, we like to see, our head-to-head double-blind studies in evidence-based medicine. So let's take a little break. Let's take a commercial break. We'll be right back. So we're back. Give us a call at WSTU here, 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. And if you've just joined us. We are talking about ancient remedies in the modern time. One yeah. of Dr. Iris' favorite subjects. It is because it's it's cool. And I researched it. And you did. Okay, so you were getting ready to tell us about maggots. I was. I was getting ready to tell you about maggots. I didn't know until I did this research that maggots were actually larvae from fruit flies. Were you aware of that? Well, I mean, maggots I never are thought like where maggots came from. Fly larvae. Are yeah, they're maggots. fly larvae. Okay. Yeah. So flies are pretty disgusting, and maggots are That's even how, more disgusting. They actually determine the uh, t- how so somebody's been dead 
uh, they can determine by the the pupa, the the, the life stage of the, the yes organism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do we use them for today? Well, you know, maggots are usually associated with dead bodies, but they can do wonders for the living. And we started getting our knowledge of maggots from Native American Indians who used maggots. And army medics in the Civil War used maggots to clean out wounds. Because what you can do with maggots is it prevents tissue infections. Right, because and the maggots get into a wound, which, you know, part of the problem with a wound is that it's got this entire micro organism uh, flora that's living there and on the dead tissue. And so in order to promote wound healing, we need to get rid of that dead tissue, but still preserve some of those microorganisms. And so the maggots are going to, if we use them in a medicinal fashion these days, we put the maggots into the wound and they actually eat away some of that dead tissue while leaving the live tissue untouched. Right. We've been doing this since 1929. So recently there was a doctor in Hawaii who felt that she wanted to use maggot therapy on one of her patients. When I say recently, within the last 50 years, okay? And what she did is she used the maggots to clean out the dead tissue, and the patient died of another infection. So what we realize from that is that if we use maggots, they have to be sterilized first. And there's a way to sterilize them, keep them alive. And we don't want maggots floating all around the hospital either. So they have a way of bagging them, and placing the bag sort of like a fence that they can't get out of mm -hmm. just over the tissue. And so we're starting to use maggots more. And what we've done is we've kind of cultured them and grown them out of the larvae of the green bottle blowfly. That's, that's where we're getting our maggots from. So on a trivia quiz, green bottle blowfly, maggots, promotes tissue healing. And so they'll feast on the bacteria and pus. Uh, but leave the normal tissue alone. Makes for a nice horror movie, doesn't it? that's not the grossest thing that you're going to talk about. But wait, there's more. But no. wait, there's more. What could be grosser than maggots? Poop. Poop, yeah. Poop is gross. And but we, we need it. Yeah, and, and people used to eat poop soup. Oh. Yeah, they, they would administer a yellow soup made from human poop to repopulate uh. the normal bacteria in the gut after people had chronic diarrhea. Right. And one of the causes of chronic diarrhea is a bacteria called Clostridium difficile. At one time it affected about 20% of hospitalized patients. We've kind of eliminated that rate, but with people with really resistant Clostridium difficile that's not killed with metronidazole or vancomycin, we use poop. But we don't use poop soup. We use a fecal transplant. Fecal transplant. That so that's taking the stool of healthy individuals that has a proper balance of the uh, bacteria that are supposed to be in the normal gut, not the population of too many C. diff bacteria. And we, we give the people that are infected new bacteria to repopulate their gut. We do. The tissue match for that? No, nah, I don't no, think no, so. No. But I've had a few patients that have actually had fecal transplants and it's gotten rid of their C. diff and their diarrhea and they've done well. But you know what's even cooler than that is transphenoidal surgery, which has been used ever since the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians didn't use it in live people. The Egyptians used it in mummification. And what they would do is they realized that you know, you've heard the quote, the best way uh, to a man's heart is through his stomach yes. and you know, cook him a good meal. Sure. Well, the Egyptians realized that the best way to a person's brain was through their nose. Ooh. Yeah, and so what they would do is they would go up the nose into the pituitary and then they would pull the whole brain down out through the nose so that the person could be mummified. Mm. We still use that approach for pituitary surgery up through the we nose. don't have to cut the head we can go right up through the nose for certain brain tumors but sometimes we do cut the head sometimes we do cut the head and when is that trepanation uh-huh uh, trepanation we're not just cutting the head we're drilling holes in the oh. head with ice picks so this was an ancient technique yeah so people really do need that extra hole in their head sometime 
but years ago they would use it in people who were deemed crazy yeah. to get rid of the bad spirits, which tended to be kind of a catch-all diagnosis. But we do it now for people that have fallen and they have blood clots, mm. uh, subdural hematomas. Right. We'll, we'll bore holes into the, the into the, to release the pressure yeah. Yeah. so that they don't herniate their brain. It's a life-saving technique. Hey, how about C-sections? When did those start happening? Well, they started happening about the time of Julius Caesar. And uh, so, hence the name cesarean section. Uh, no, nah, that's, that's a myth. Yeah. That's a myth. They did occur in the time of Julius Caesar when a woman had died and they thought they could still save the baby. They did not do it in living women because they had no good surgical techniques. But. The word cesarean actually comes from the Latin root word cader, C-A-E-D-E-R-E, which means to cut. Ah. So it's not named after Caesar. Speaking of that, Caesar salads. I love Caesar salads. Were they named after Caesar? (laughs) Perhaps. No. No. They they came from the house of Caesar. Foodie. You know, I'm a foodie. Mm -hmm. They came from the house of Caesar in Tijuana, Mexico. And that's that's where they were first invented. All right. So cesarean sections really uh, came more into vogue in in this century. Hmm. But now we're getting away from cesarean sections and trying to do more live births. Hospitals have looked at this for years. And right. we realize we're probably doing too many C-sections. And now we're doing more V-backs. You know what V-back. a V-back is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Vaginal so, birth after C-section. Correct. Right. Uh, so we're, we're doing a the, lot The original of myth was if once you had one, you had to continue with that process, right? Right. Prior to that VBAC. Right. So we've got C-sections, trepidation, fecal transplants, transphenoidal surgery. You know what I find interesting before we start talking about herbs is naturalist. Hmm. And people who are truly naturalists, and my patients say, well, what about this herb? What about that herb? And my quote to them is people that only believe yeah. in natural remedies will truly die natural deaths. Yeah. I mean, there are certain pharmaceutical products we yeah, like really need Yul to be Gibbons. using all the time. Like Yule Gibbons. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he would eat barks from trees. Yeah. So if you're just tuning in, yeah. we are talking about ancient remedies in the modern time. And I think this is really making a comeback these days because I think people are feeling ties to their roots. And there's certain cultures. Oh, that's a good pun. Yeah, ties are, to their roots. And roots, uh, roots are herbs. Yeah. Right. So there's certain cultures that still you know, kind of prefer to take the natural way, even though, you know, we're here in 2019 with pharmaceuticals galore, there's still people that I think have um, tendencies to feel that the natural way is better. Well, sometimes it is like willow tree bark for pain relief. You know, if you look at willow tree bark, both the ancient Egyptians and the Greeks used willow bark to relieve headache. And the Royal Society in London in 1763 said that this was very effective. But it wasn't until 1915 that a German by the name of Bayer, who is now a big drug giant, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, started selling it over-the-counter as aspirin because aspirin is derived from willow tree bark. Hmm. Yeah. So, But there are a lot of things like tribes in Jordan, uh, the Israelites, uh, the Hebrews, uh, the Turks, that whole Middle Eastern culture, their food is very healthy. Uh, their treatment is very healthy. And if you talk about Jordanians, for instance, they would much rather use natural preparations than modern medicines. Mm-hmm. But there's a danger to that, isn't it, Leanne? Well, yeah. I mean, so so when we were preparing for this show, we were talking about, you know, this phenomenon of people coming to their primary care doctor and asking for a natural way to treat their problems. And, you know, this is this is bread and butter for what we do these days. Would you would you not agree, Ira, that a lot of people feel this urge to kind of go back and do what seems natural to them in this world where pharmaceuticals and our current medical culture seems very unnatural? natural to them. So, and I was, I was reading and preparing for this uh, show today and had read a statistic that uh, by 1997, it was estimated that there were 243 million more visits to alternative medicine providers than to primary 
primary care physicians. Isn't that astounding? That is astounding. Yeah. So I think it's safe Repeat to Repeat that number again. 243 million more visits to alternative alternative medicine providers than to primary care doctors. We really need a holy Caltrot. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that the current trend for the average North American health consumer is to become ever more involved in taking charge of their personal health needs with the pursuit of proactive self-care that frequently incorporates botanicals and nutritional sub supplements into lifestyle medicine. Do you not feel that too, Frank, that mm. I think people that like to self-identify as healthy and pro-health mm. feel that that nowadays means that they incorporate non-pharmaceuticals, botanical yeah. intervention. Not that they're doing nothing, but they're right. doing something and it involves vitamins, minerals, right. supplements. But but yet when I was exactly. doing Yeah, you're describing me. But ah. yet when I was doing my plagiarism for this show. Yeah. My research for this show, I could not find one good substantiated study mm. that said that people that take multiple herbs and vitamins live longer. Now there's a lot of sensationalistic information out right. there. Yeah. And so, and so, but I think, no good head to head studies. Yeah. And I think that that, so, so what I find when I'm having heart to heart discussions with patients is that they're disappointed in physicians, allopathic, which is the word that we use to describe, you know, current, our current way of practicing medicine, allopathic, osteopathic. Why don't current physicians in the United States seem to embrace botanicals as, as medicine? And one of the reasons is because current allopathic medication is founded on evidence. In other words, even if something makes logical sense, if the research doesn't support its benefit, then we don't consider it beneficial. And this is a really hard thing for patients who aren't necessarily trained in the scientific method is that they say, well, it makes sense that this treatment's going to work. So why, why don't we just right. do it? Well, right. if the evidence doesn't support that it works and it doesn't. So, you know, I find that that's, that's what patients are disappointed that I can't, I can't make their, uh, the claims of these, um, botanical companies be true because but, I don't have the evidence to support it. And it puts us in a tough spot Yeah, because a lot of my patients, not all, but a lot would rather believe the guy at GNC than us. Yeah. And so, and so I think that that tr distrust of the medical profession that has evolved over the last 20, 30 years, that distrust of the man, right? I think is maybe a larger distrust to big pharma. Oh, I agree. I, I, well, there's a lot of myths that people yeah. like me are paid by big pharma. Right, and right. I, I would, I really wish that were true. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely wish it were true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's yeah. not. And so, you know, so here's the deal. The current gold standard for validating pharmaceutical efficacy for medications in the United States is a randomized double-blinded clinical trial. So this is a really big study. This is an extremely expensive study to do. It basically, we, we take people, we eliminate uh, certain factors that uh, would confound the evidence. So, you know, we try to make them a uniform patient population. We randomly assign medication versus no medication, and then we study the outcome. And that's a very difficult study to do. And so, you know, it takes a big pharmaceutical company to fund such a study, and they, they just don't have the money to do that for uh, botanicals and things that aren't necessarily going to make the industry a lot of money. So botanical supplements in the United States are not required to abide by the same rules as pharmaceutical drugs. And right. so they don't have to be FDA approved. No. And so therefore the, each batch isn't regulated. Right. So the D so you really don't know what you're getting from right. batch to batch. Right. So the, the dietary supplement and health education act the DSHEA, which was enacted in 1994, allows dietary supplements to be marketed without prior approval of their efficacy and safety by the FDA. So basically, manufacturers of these products, so not, not GNC, but any vitamin company, mm -hmm. they are permitted to claim that the product affects the structure or function of the body as long as they say that the claim is an FDA approved. So in other words, you can make a supplement that does, you know, cures cancer, write it on the bottle, put it on the shelf. As long as you say that the FDA hasn't approved the supplement, you're allowed to make that claim. So can you imagine as a consumer, you know, you're duped. And can you imagine our frustration as doctors when a lot of these dietary supplements, right. not drugs, dietary supplements, because diet. That's the key word, dietary supplement. Right. Does not have to be FDA approved. 
FDA approved, but they still interact with a lot of the medications we're using. Here's a perfect example. Let's say I have someone with cardiovascular disease and I have them on aspirin and Plavix. And now they decided that ginkgo biloba was really good for memory loss. And the Europeans use a lot of ginkgo biloba for memory loss. In France, for instance, ginkgo biloba accounts for 4% of all prescription medications. And the herb comprises 1% of prescription sales in Germany where it is licensed for the treatment of, quote, cerebral insufficiency, end quote. Hmm. And it's used to treat problems ranging from impaired memory, dizziness, ringing in the ears, t- which is tinnitus. Some people pronounce it tinnitus, but tinnitus, it's really tinnitus. tinnitus okay. uh, headaches, nervousness, and anxiety. And in Europe, more than $500 million a year is spent on ginkgo biloba. But did you know that ginkgo biloba will interact with aspirin, with Plavix, with other blood thinners, and increase the likelihood of bleeding? So, so yeah, so they don't tell you that. No, they don't. And so here's what's a challenge for us, right? Is that only it's estimated that only fifty percent of people share honestly what natural products they're taking with their physician. So, you know, it's it's not an it's not even playing field. Another issue that makes it difficult for us to translate these botanical medications into modern medicine is that the mechanism of preparation isn't the same. So, if you if you ever watch like old movies and whatnot, they're delivering tinctures of things, right? Or teas of things. They're not taking, you know, the pure form of something, grinding it up into a mega pill and and taking it. And so, this is what makes it difficult difficult to do research on these botanical things is that what we do is meta-analyses where we take little baby studies that have all said that garlic, for example, is helpful, and we compile it all into one big study. Well, this study used uh, aged garlic. This study used fresh garlic. This study used oil of garlic. And are all those things the same? Probably not. So it's very difficult to take that evidence and say that conclusively a garlic pill is going to do the same thing that this study that used oil of garlic did. So that that's one of the difficulties of translating what, you know, is good for us into, you know, a recommendation from your physician. And it makes it difficult to treat. I, I remember one of the first patients I had when I started private practice in the 1980s was an older lady. She must have been 80 at the time. And she wore a little vial around her neck. And I go, what's in the vial? She goes, tincture of opium. It was actually liquid opium. I said, can you even get that these days? And she said, well, it's derived from poppies. And I get the tincture from an old school pharmacist up in New England. I said, what do you use it for? She goes, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. It relaxes my gut. I said, how much do you use? She goes, a couple drops, two, three drops. I just dose it accordingly. We can't do that stuff anymore. No. Uh, the FDA doesn't allow that. Uh, our malpractice companies would would red flags all over the place, and and that's what makes our job right. very very difficult sometimes. An, another example: St. John's Wort. Uh, it's W O R T, not W A R T. Okay, I just want to let you know, yeah. and it's used to treat depression. It's not something we've just discovered, and it's been used in Germany and Europe for since ancient times. But it comes as a surprise to us here in the United States because we've chosen more to sever our roots to herbal medicine. But in Europe, they're still using a lot of St. John's wort. But what happens if a patient doesn't tell me they're using St. John's wort and comes in and they're depressed, and then I put them on another antidepressant mm. or, or let's say a drug for Parkinson's, which might uh, contain uh, MAOI inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Does that interact with St. John's wort and could that cause really bad problems? Absolutely it can. So this field of study now in modern day medicine, there there is a link, right? So here we are now at the beginning of things. We know that patients and consumers are begging us to reach into our past and to know more about the natural remedies for things. The the bridge to this is what we now call integrative medicine. And so there there is there are courses in modern day medical school. There are people that particularly specialize in integrative medicine, fellowships that you can do that train you how to responsibly take this information that's not to the degree of uh, medical 
literature that we're used to and try to compile something safe for patients. But, you know, my take on this right now is I always like to tell patients that I have I have a relationship with alternative medicine. I don't necessarily recommend it all the time, but I have a relationship with it. I know it's something that patients want to talk about. Right. I know it's something that patients feel judged if right. they do kind of lean towards alternative therapies. I have to figure out a way to to get along, even though it's not necessarily right. So, what do you want your training. doctor to do? Those of you who are listening who aren't patients of mine or who aren't patients of Dr. Leanne's, you want your doctor to listen. You want your doctor to keep an open mind about this. You want your doctor to say, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Let me look that up for you. The problem with medicine today is we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time. Yeah. We don't have enough time. If, if the standard doctor out there is seeing 25 patients a day, and so with us in DPC medicine, when we're seeing six to eight patients, we have time to look things up. We have time to do our, our research or plagiarism, if you will, yeah, and, and get back to the patient and say, you know, there could be a drug interaction here. Right. Well, actually, you know, so so our big beef with these supplements and whatnot not being FDA regulated. So, so one of the things that they have are these independent organizations that test dietary and herbal supplements and kind of give them a seal of approval. good, yeah, a seal of approval. The thing of it is, is have you ever heard of the GMP, the Good Manufacturing Practices Seal of Approval? Have you ever heard of the NSF International, National Sanitation Foundation International Seal? No, you haven't. And so this is, this is one of the problems, right, is that patients are asking us to lend our medical expertise on whether or not their natural preparations are safe, but yet patients don't know anything about these uh, organizations that... They're not doing their own research. Well, right, and there's a they're lot of not. danger out there because, for instance, they've studied grapes, and we know that drinking a glass of red wine a day has been deemed healthy, may, may prevent heart disease. Why? Because grapes contain polyphenols, and they contain tannins, but there's also a substance derived from grapes, pycnogenol. And I've had patients tell me, I'm going to stop my chemotherapy because pycnogenol cures cancer. Don't do that. Listen to your oncologist. Listen to your doctors. We did, we did go to medical school. We, we did train. I think it's okay to add alternatives, to go on an organic-based diet as a secondary approach. But don't expect the miracle cure. Yeah. So, so I try to compile like my top three, you know, Dr. Leanne opinions on alternative therapies. And it's this. So number one, I think that if you are on other prescription medications, I recommend against additional vitamins and herbal supplements, unless specifically prescribed by a physician in order to avoid interactions. Right. And that just makes common sense. Sure. Right. If, if we are not studying these vitamins and supplements in true double blinded randomized controlled trials, then we cannot say speak to their safety combined with other pharmaceutical medications. And right. typically people taking pharmaceutical medications have chronic disease states that are going to lead to, you know, symptoms and whatnot. And if we have other medications or preparations on board, it's going to obscure our ability to identify problems. So that's my recommendation. If you're on other prescriptions, you probably should avoid these until the data is out there. Right. A good example is as feverfew for headaches because it causes vasoconstriction. Somebody has heart disease, the last thing you want to do is Right. Vasoconstriction. Exactly. The second recommendation I have is if you are a person who is leaning towards alternative therapies, I think you should eat your nutrients, right? I think colors, probiotics, antioxidants, raw vegetables, those are the things you need to focus on. Not pills, not pill coatings, not, you know, components in pills that aren't the main ingredient. You should focus on food. Because Green, you know, yellow, red, and orange. Exactly. So, you know, I always say to patients, if, if you're going to focus on food, don't torture me <laughs> trying to get make recommendations for what foods to eat if you're going to go out and uh, drink a bottle of Chianti every night and eat Chick-fil-A every night. You know what I mean? Like, but I do, I do have these people that have gardens and they grow their own foods. And for them to come in and ask me to sit and strategize on some natural remedies for things, some, some foods that they should eat. I really take them seriously because they are walking the walk.
right? The third recommendation I have is that if you choose to pursue natural preparations and botanicals, you need to spend an equal amount of time looking into the programs that verify their purity. So what we mentioned before is there are these organizations that privately look at these substances until the day that we all fully have embraced the trend towards natural preparation, the burden of knowledge is on the consumer. So, it, it, you know, I haven't been trained in this. I give that full disclaimer when people sign on to my practice. If you want to be the person to embrace natural remedies, then you also owe it to yourself to do the research to make sure what you're doing is a good idea. Not me. Right. If you've just joined us, we've been talking about ancient remedies in modern times. And you could have called in. I, I guess that that part's over now. And you could have <laughs> called us there at the studio. And if you missed the show, and we, and we gave out some interesting points mm -hmm. here. It's not too late to listen to us again because you can catch us on iTunes tomorrow. Mm -hmm. we'll, our, our podcast will so be So you up. can subscribe to our podcast. You can catch us right after this just by going to our YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And it's been fun preparing for this show. But yeah. next week we have a special guest again. Leanne, who do we have next week? We have Dr. Molly Ryan, who is a local psychiatrist. And we're calling the show, Ira's calling the yeah. show, Shrink wrapped. Shrink wrapped. No I shortage like of puns these days. No shortage of puns. I yeah. And Frank, you're going to eventually make it to Washington. Eventually. Yeah. And, and thank so. you for ruining my whole segue I in today's know. show by not going, going to Washington. <laughs> uh, the airlines, you know, overall, they, they do a pretty good job. They got me home safely. I should have known I was in trouble when I flew up to Atlanta on a uh, 737 MAX 8. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so I should have, that should that portended bad result. If you have any questions yeah. uh, about what we've talked about today, uh, you can email me at Dr. Ira at preservehealthmd.com. That's D R I R A at preservehealthmd.com. And Leanne? Yeah, mine is uh, Dr. Talton at wholelifedpc.com. But, you know, if you have suggestions for show topics or some feedback on the show, we'd love to hear from you. This has been a great experience getting to know our local community and our distant community now that we're on iTunes. Right. And if you're a patient of mine, I'll be back in the office at one. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks for listening. This has been fun, Frank. Yeah. Leanne, thank yeah. you so much for allowing us to do this type of a show. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I think our, our customers, our listeners will as well. We'll yes. see you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Right.